This is your house. These are your neighbor's houses. How many of these neighbors do you know by name? Go ahead, try to name them. If you're like most people these days, you probably only know a few of your neighbors by name. We have garages for our cars, privacy fences for our backyards, and we seem to be perpetually busy. You're doing pretty well if you wave or say hi as you're passing by. But what if we did more? What if we made it a point to learn the names of the people who live on our block? What if we took the time to listen to our neighbors and find out what makes them tick? What if our neighborhoods relied on each other in times of need, whether it be for a cup of flour or a shoulder to cry on? What if Jesus really meant that we should love our actual neighbors? Imagine the difference you could make in your neighborhood if you got to know your neighbors better. This is Luke 10, verses 25 through 37 in the English Standard Version. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit an eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he dared desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was coming down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and what, whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that we can open our Bibles and we can know what you desire of us. God, I pray that you will help us to not just simply be hearers of the word, but God, we will be doers of your word today. God, I thank you for uh, just your Holy Spirit who is uh, in us and among us, God, and I pray that um, he will enlighten the truth of today's scripture, illuminate it, make it practical in our lives, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I got a little prop here, and I didn't give uh, this guy any heads up that I was going to pull him up here today, but I don't think he'll be too mad at me. Eric, come up here. Eric Delanois, real quick. All right, so... This, this uh, little uh, stand right here, this is for an exercise called the box jump. And uh, you, yeah, you want to stand? All right, stand on it. Okay, you, uh, I'm going to give you a chance to get up there in a minute, so go ahead and get off. Um, uh, but you're actually going to have to jump it. All right, so here, here's the deal, all right? I'm going to read you the um, how you do a box jump, the technique, okay? So you need to uh, get in the stance, maybe facing this way, all right? So stand in an athletic position, 
All right, that was good, yeah. All right, <laughs> with your feet shoulder width apart, okay, pretty close, uh, a comfortable distance away from the box. All right, move back a little. Uh, and when you're ready to jump, you drop quickly into a squatting position, then extend your hips, swing your arms, and push your feet through the floor to propel yourself on the box. All right, so that's just a classic box jump. Do you want to, I know you've been sick last week. You feel all right with trying this? All right, give it a shot, all right? All right, very good. All right, give him a hand, give him a hand. Yes. All right, so let me ask you, is the object of this exercise, no, hold on, you got to stay here. Is the object of this exercise just to simply just land on the box once, you're done, accomplished? What, what's the object? Multiple. multiple times, right. To do it multiple times, to jump it down. And why are you doing that? To get what? You have to work out to get exercise, get your heart rate up. All right, thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. We'll come back to this. Yeah, give it, yeah, another hand, all right. Um, we'll come back to that illustration in a second. But as we look at the story we call the Good Samaritan, I think this is very applicable because you're going to encounter a guy here who just wanted to know what was the bare minimum. What did I need to do in order to accomplish what God wants? So Roy uh, talked about the first part of this passage last week. We're going to go back and set the context and then we're going to move into the actual parable itself. So verse 25, uh, this lawyer, he comes to Jesus and he says, um, this lawyer stood up to ask a question. Now, this is not the kind of lawyers we think about today where, you know, they come to, to bail you out of jail or to get you out of a DUI or whatever they do. Um, these were the experts of the Old Testament law, particularly the Torah. These were people who understood and knew the law. So he was a lawyer of the law, the Old Testament law. And it says in verse 25 that he stood up to put Jesus to a test, saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All right, you may miss this because familiarity can be very much an obstacle for us when it comes to parables because we've heard them so many times. But if, it's careful that you understand this truth of this, uh, of this right here, what he just said, that he used Jesus' language when describing something here, eternal life. This is not found in the Old Testament. This language, this, this ter sort of terminology is not there. So he uses Jesus' expression in, in this, was asking this question. And so that gives us a little bit of a clue of his perspective and the fact that Scripture tells us, Luke tells us, that he's testing Jesus. He's putting Jesus to a test. So we got this expert of the law, and you got Jesus, this backwoods so-called rabbi from Nazareth, who's going and teaching, and you can imagine the religious establishment of the day would have been threatened by Jesus, because at this time in Jesus' ministry, he was very popular, many people were following him, he was doing miracles, and so they felt threatened by not only the things that he was doing, but by what he was teaching. And so uh, the man uh, was making an assumption here, he asked, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And we're going to see this uh, lawyer, this guy who knows the Torah back and forth, his, his focus is a lot on doing. And Jesus is going to change his perspective. And so he uses this opportunity, Jesus does, to respond in ways that we would not respond. I would have responded if I was Jesus. I would have said, hey, let me tell you who I am, kind of the Nicodemus approach. I'm going to explain to you what eternal life is. You must be born again. But Jesus doesn't do that. He breaks into a parable. And if you know scripture, if you've been around church at all, you know that parables are entertaining, they're amazing stories, they're just so deep, and, and they have such beautiful, picturesque language that Jesus is describing, and that's what makes them unforgettable, and that's why we remember these things. 
But parables are not just stories. In fact, commentator Matthew Henry says, Parables make the things of God more plain and easy to uh, those willing to be taught, and at the same time, more difficult and obscure to those who are willfully ignorant. And that's a very, very good point, because the truth is, even in our day, and as much as this parable has been discussed and talked about, that still people end up just turning this parable into more law. And we're going to see that's not the case. But when Jesus told parables, most were, even though they seem very simple, they're complex. They produce more confusion oftentimes among the religious insiders of the day than they did understanding. And oftentimes when Jesus used parables, he was to call attention to people's incorrect explanations and understandings that they had. And that's the case of this parable as well. And through the, so through this parable, Jesus is attempting to show this lawyer that the Jewish religious system of the day was completely bankrupt in their understanding and in their application of God's law. And he wants to use this to point to himself. And so in verse 26, he, Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So what's your interpretation? What do you say? What's the answer to your question? He turns around and asks him a question. We talked about this last week. He responded correctly, he, rightly. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus commends that answer. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. So Jesus said, you nailed it. In fact, Jesus, in other passages, he was asked the same question, and Jesus responded virtually with the exact same answer. And so Jesus says, you're right. You know the truth. You get it. But he goes on to verse 29 and the lawyer then follows up with another question. And I think we're going to see here that he not only had a question, but he had a question behind the question. In verse 29, it says that he wanted to justify himself, important words. And so he follows up with, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He wants more specifics. He wants to justify himself. And I think this is the key to understanding this parable. The lawyer is oblivious to his own true spiritual condition. He wants to show everyone else that he's very capable, and I'm getting a little wobble here, I don't know why. He's getting a, he, he wants to show people he's very capable of obeying the command, doing what God requires, obeying the law. I can accomplish that, no problem. But he misses the point behind the law. He misses, they misunderstand, misinterpret, misapply what God had said. And so his question is an attempt to show that he's fulfilled the command. He wants, uh, he wants his moral duties to be defined with precision and accuracy to show that he had truly kept the law. I read the law. I did it. I, I, I kept the posture. I did everything exactly what I, the way I was supposed to do it. I landed perfectly on the box. Check it off the box. Done. Perfect. But the question behind the question really is this, and it really wasn't a question much at all. It was, Jesus, I'm a good man, am I not? Don't you think so? Don't you think, Jesus, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person? And so this question, who is my neighbor, there's cultural background to him even asking that. You see, some way, somehow, in this day and age, and we're guilty of this too, lest we look back and wonder, you know, how can they get stuff so wrong? We can do the very same thing. They looked at, script, uh, at the law, they saw the scripture, but they had also their own interpretation, their own teachings about what these laws meant. In some way, they had come to the conclusion, and some on written on, on some writings that were not part of 
the scriptures, but were extra biblical interpretations and, and illustrations and examples of what the scripture, how it plays out in real life. There was some belief during that day that you should love your friends and those who agree with you, the righteous, but you were to hate your enemies. In fact, Jesus referred to this in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember in verse 43 when Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. He said, you've heard that, right? Of course they had. But you know what? That's not found in Scripture. It's not found in the, found in the Torah. That's not found in the Old Testament. And so what he was doing, he was pointing out this oral tradition that they had, which was not truth. It was not found in, in Scripture. So they had twisted the law and the prophets to make the neighbor the good people, the, the law-abiding, the people who do all the things they're supposed to do, they're, they're Torah observers. They don't sneak in. They, you know, they, they've come in the right way. They're, they're good moral people. And those are the people that we are to love. Those are our neighbors. But the other people, they're against us. They're tearing down our systems. They're destroying our culture. They're hurting us. And so those are the enemies. Those are who we go to war against. And so what I love about Jesus is Jesus never lets us keep our systems, our beliefs, our theology right here. He makes us work them out on street level. You see, it's easy when it's up here to begin to say, these are the people who I accept, and these people, because of these things, I don't really accept them. And I love them, you know, the, the, you know I'm supposed to love them, but I don't accept them. But Jesus brings it down to real life, to earth, to, to street level, and he says, look, if you're going to believe in me, if you're going to trust in me, if you're going to see me for who I am, then you have to love everyone. And he goes and he begins to tell this parable. I love what Daryl Bach says. He says, Luke 10, 25 through 37, wonderfully illustrates Jesus' capacity in turning an abstract theological discussion into a discourse on real life issues. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing it down and he's saying, look, you have to apply this stuff in real life. And that's why I love Larry Osborne's statement that the measure of a true disciple is their obedience to what they know. Because I think we're all good at that. We're all good at knowing the information, but just like James says, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He's saying, look, until it's applied, until you practice it, then it's not really faith. Because you're not really trusting and believing. You're just saying you do. You're just, you have it up here in your head, but it's not worked its way out. So therefore, it's not truly faith. And so Jesus pushes them on this issue. He pushes culture, his, the beliefs of the day. He pushes this lawyer in particular. And so he exposes this hypocrisy. And in verse 33 he chooses a Samaritan to be the person who is the hero of this parable, this story. And why did he choose the Samaritan? If you've been around church at all, you know that the Samaritan was the most non-neighbor that Jesus could have thought of probably at that point in time. Because why? He, he wasn't an, a straight-out infidel like the Romans were, but it was a person who was a half-breed, so to speak. They were people who had mixed uh, this Jewish and this pagan culture and ancestry, and although they worshipped the true God, they weren't mainstream Judaism. And so they were looked at as half-breeds, outcasts of the day. And this lacks the power that, in the context that Jesus was telling this, but this would have been very, very shocking 
to the lawyer. And so the expectation clearly here is that the priest and the Levite, these guys would have been the good guys who would have been expected to help the wounded traveler. That would have been the expectation. But Jesus obviously is doing something totally different here. He takes the the Samaritan and he makes him the one who shows compassion. And so this man who's on this journey, he's stripped of his clothes, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's left for dead, he's left on the side of the road. And two opportunities then for aid come by, the priest and the Levite, both God-fearing people. They pass by on the other side to avoid helping the man. If the man in his half-dead, I think that's an official medical term, half-dead, half-dead condition, if he would have seen these guys, he would have thought as they were coming, he was like, oh, surely help is arriving here, right? All right, there's the priest. If anybody's going to stop and help me, it's the priest. But the priest says, no, goes on the other side, the Levite. Another spiritual guy comes by. He's a leader in the the religious community. He goes by on the other side of the road. They don't offer the help. We could speculate. People have ideas of why these guys wouldn't have helped, but the truth is we don't really know from the story why they wouldn't help. But the point was the Samaritan does. This half-breed, he stops to help the wounded traveler. And so the Samaritan has pity on the wounded man, and then Jesus details in a series of verbs here just how active this man was in ministering to this newly discovered needy neighbor. He goes to him, says he bandages him, he pours oil and wine on his wounds, he puts him on his donkey, he carries him to the inn, he takes care of him, even to the point of leaving extra money behind to make sure the man uh, has two weeks lodging um, to, to recover. And then in addition, he tells the innkeeper that he's going to keep a running tab on him and that he will return and pay for any additional costs. So he offers ministry and then offers to actually do something, underwrite this with his own money to, from this recovery from start to finish. And then Jesus, when he finishes the parable, he turns around and he asks a very simple question to the lawyer. He says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And look what, what, how the, the uh, lawyer responds. He can't even bring himself to use the word Samaritan. He can't even say it, the man by his race. He says, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. And you almost can just see the smug and self-righteousness of this man as he's responding in this way. And Jesus says, now you go and you do likewise. So the lawyer wants to know if Jesus agrees with him that the neighbor is just the select elite, those religious insiders. He wasn't seeking truth at all. He was looking to test, the scripture tells us, to, to test Jesus, to trap Jesus. You see, Jesus was teaching something that was challenging the religious establishment of the day, inheriting the kingdom of God. He was offering something, and he was teaching something that did not go along with the way they believed. And so he was tearing down their establishment And he was preaching something contrary to their beliefs and their traditions. But look what Jesus does in response. Look what he does. He does three things, at least here. He he makes the call no longer assessing the other people and saying, okay, is she my neighbor? Is he my neighbor? Is that person my neighbor? Jesus turns it. He doesn't make it about assessing somebody else, but he makes it about being a certain type of person. Being a certain type of person. The lawyer thought... You know, I can do this. I, I, I can fulfill the law. 
He was a good law keeper versus, really, what kind of person am I? He was so good at making sure he could dot the I's and cross the T's, the expert of the law, but he missed the heart behind it because he wasn't. He was so concerned about, okay, God, tell me, or Jesus, who is my neighbor? Let's make sure that I got this covered here. He wasn't concerned about what his heart condition was, who he was. And Jesus says, it's about who you are. It's not necessarily about like making sure you always measure up. What kind of person are you? Do you love other people? And then next, Jesus redefines the neighbor. And then he tells them, the third thing, he tells him that, that uh, the story of this good Samaritan to show the futility of self-justification. The futility of self-justification. You see, in the context of this scripture, if you've read along with Luke leading up to this, Luke is setting a series of events. And and at this point in the Gospel of Luke, he's pointing to the cross. He's leading to the cross. In fact, if you go back one chapter to chapter 9, verse 43 through 45, Jesus had just said this. Luke had just recorded this. He said, but while they were all marveling at everything that Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So they're marveling at what Jesus was doing and the miracles and the incredible things. But Jesus says, look, this is not what I've come here for. I've come here on a mission. I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of men. I'm going to be crucified. And then the the very section prior to this parable, before, before this dialogue with this lawyer in chapter 10, verse 23 through 24, he's given this revelation that he's the Messiah, that something bigger is going on here. Look at verse 23 and 24. Jesus then turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, verse 24, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So, Jesus is so doing something. He's showing who he is. He's revealing himself. And, I, and, and as I read this parable again and tried to have fresh eyes on it, I did question too, why did Jesus not just reveal himself like he did to Nicodemus? You know, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. Why did Jesus not tell this to the lawyer? Why did he tell this parable and cloak it in, 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 the, in the story that, that, that we tried to interpret and make sense out of? Why did he do that and tell him to be, here's who your neighbor is, versus just saying, look, believe in me, trust in me? Why did Jesus not do that? And I think here's the reason why Jesus didn't do that. There is no good news unless you see the bad news. There's no good news unless you see the bad news. You see, the bad news is, spiritually speaking, just jumping up on this isn't the goal. Okay, I I made it up. I'm I'm here. I'm on top of it. Good, I made it. Did you know the world record for box jump, pretty amazing, is five foot three, all right, from a standing position, what Eric did for us, illustrated there. Would you like to try that one, by the way, five three, you know what? Okay, so about this high, you have to to land on top, flat-footed on top. Five foot three, pretty amazing. And here, this lawyer, this expert in the Old Testament, I mean, he thought he's pretty good. I mean, he, he, he was shooting for the world record, right? I, I, I've got this down. 
I can earn God's favor. I can please God. I'm a pretty good person. I can, I can keep the law. I know the law. I can keep the law. But the thing he's missing here is, and Jesus points out very subtly, and as we see through the Gospels, it's, it becomes more and more evident that Jesus is saying that, look, if you want, and, and this was clear in the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to earn your righteousness, if you want to earn right standing before God, then here's what you have to do. You have to keep it perfectly. You have to keep the law perfectly. And so the goal isn't here, and the goal isn't here. The goal is the moon. The goal is God. Can anyone measure up to that? Obviously not. But he thought that he was capable of God's standard. He was a very righteous man. But we can't earn it. There's nothing we can do. No one is righteous. Scripture says, no, not one. So this parable, it's actually a salvation story. It's a story about who Jesus is, and it's a story about who we are. Another parable that Jesus told illustrates this, of the man who came to pray. And all he could do was lower his head, and his posture was humble and broken. And he said, have mercy upon me, God, a sinner. And you had the Pharisee, the righteous person, the religious person of the day, standing over in a pious position, looking down on the poor broken sinner, saying, I'm thankful I'm not like him. You know, I do all the stuff. I'm a good person. I'm moral. I'm righteous. I keep the rules, unlike this guy over here. You see, Jesus shows us time and time again that we don't measure up. That's why we must be born again. That's why it matters who we are, not just what we do. Who we are is much more important, and what we do flows out of who we are. And so the big idea of Jesus' parable is not to imitate the good Samaritan, although we should do great deeds. It's not social justice. It's not, let's see, if we can change the world by good actions and loving other people. The point of the parable, while all those things may be good, and, and those things are good, we're, we're to help our fellow man, and we're to serve, and we're to minister, and we're going to see more of that in a minute. But the point is, only when we've truly experienced the rescuing grace of Jesus can we really become like the Samaritan, and like Jesus himself, in showing mercy and compassion. It's only when we've experienced the rescuing grace of Jesus. And here, here's, I think, where we as a church and a culture, and we talk a lot about this, and so hopefully it's starting to sink in, because I was guilty of this for years and years myself. We make this idea of experiencing grace and mercy of Jesus a one-time event, which it is. Salvation is a point, and it's, our standing before God is right through Jesus and through faith in him only. But we think that that's the extent of the gospel that we need, because we're in. We check that box off we're good to go, and then we turn around and we live the Christian life through self-effort, through doubling our effort. i got to do better, and oftentimes this is driven by guilt. We, the, the Spirit convicts us, and we hear a story like the prodigal son, and we start to hear the application. I'm sorry, the, the Good Samaritan, we start to hear the application, and we say, I can do this. I, I can be better. I'm, I'm not good enough. I need to be better. And we turn around and we put all the focus upon ourselves. 
And Jesus is saying, look, the gospel isn't just what got you in. The gospel is how you live the Christian life. It's still this needing of the rescuing grace of Jesus every day that we don't measure up. And that's why we need a Savior. And what we do is we turn God into a supporting cast member in our life story versus God being the center. And this is his story, his redemptive story. We make God peripheral and we're the center. But the gospel reminds us again and again and again that we are desperate for his righteousness. He's given us his righteousness. He's changed us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But we don't check it off and leave there. We don't just say, past grace, thankful for past grace. Now I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to try harder and be moral. But we also walk in that future grace. The grace that God continues to pour out through his son. And we, we connect to that grace through humility. By understanding that we fall short. That the only righteousness, the only righteousness we have is Jesus Christ and him, and him alone. And so we're someone who continues to need rescued. So we don't stand back like the lawyer and we don't stand here and define righteousness and we define neighbor and we define it objectively and we act self-righteously in the process. But we see ourselves as someone needing rescued a wounded traveler in need of assistance. And not just assistance. We're totally incapable. And you see how that changes up practically? Again, the way Jesus would do it. He would bring it down and make it be street level. He ch- what is your posture like? Do you each day wake and say, apart from you, Jesus, I got nothing here today. I I can go and do my job, and I can bring home my paycheck, and I can make it through this day. But look, all that's going to burn up. That's temporary. Future grace says, I believe, I, I trust, I know there's something more. It's greater. I'm putting my treasures in heaven, not on earth. I'm not being content with just seeing right here in front of me. But I understand That God has called me to something so much greater. And he's invited me into his work. And into his will. And so all of a sudden, it's not me and my agenda and my day and my life and my job and my family and my kids. It's all his. All of it. And so we bring it all into the perspective of God's will. God's redemptive story. Not my story. God's story. And even though Jesus' point here in this parable isn't to allegorize and say that he's the good Samaritan, but he is. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. He comes to people condemned to death, and he has compassion. He reaches down, and he applies first aid to the wounds, and he saves our life. So let me ask you this. Will you admit you are? A wounded traveler. Or you fall more on the side of the self-righteous guy sitting here saying, okay, who, who should I care for and minister to? All right, who is worthy of my ministry, my giving, my 
reaching out to them. And we have this critical spirit about us, even though it's very subtle and it sneaks in and probably we think that it's not, it's not us. We see it in other people very easily, but we don't see it in ourselves. And it's only when we admit how deep and comprehensive our sin problem is that we get excited about the rescue only God's mercy and grace can provide us. It's only when we admit that. Is that where you're at today? Do you admit you're wounded and you're broken and, 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 and life? You can't do God's purposes. You, you may have life under control at this point. Things may be going great for you from an earthly standpoint, but that doesn't matter, spiritually speaking. What's God doing through you and in you that only he can do? That comes by admitting your inability and you still need a Savior. You still need a Savior. It's not, I had a Savior, I'm going to heaven, but I still need a Savior to live this life. So there's where it starts. Admitting, and not just a one-time thing, it's a daily rhythm of your life that you open Scripture and you look at Scripture, and you read Scripture, and you read it with eyes of humility. And as you read, and God speaks through His Word, I can't do this, God. This has to be you. This has to be a Holy Spirit thing, and we'll talk about that next week. Because I can't live the life. And Jesus says, that's my point. You can't. You can't do it. That's what I've been telling you all along. It's not to find for me exactly what I should do, but it's you can't do it. That's why you need a Savior. And here's the thing, and today we're going to be doing deacon and elder ordination. We're going to be praying over a couple guys. And here's a great reminder for all of us, and particularly for these two guys. The more that we study Scripture, the more that we daily sit at Jesus' feet, the more hypocrisy we see in our own lives. The more we see ourselves as, as a sinner need of a Savior, this dual identity that we have. We're declared righteous. We are a saint. But we are still incarcerated in this flesh that loves to do what it loves to do and loves to feel good and loves comfort. It loves power. It loves control. And even the good things that we do are tainted by those kind of motives. And so we run to our Savior again and again and again and again. And we admit our inability. And that's where God meets us and says, you can't, but yes, I can. And, and, but why do we do this? I mean, we all do this. We all hide behind hypocrisy. You know, a sin is brought up and we, we say, oh, I feel so sorry for that guy. You know, what, he was doing so well. What happened there? You know, why, and, and you see, we just keep distancing ourselves from that. And it's so refreshing sometimes when you hear somebody just say, this authentic, real person say, you know, I struggle with a lot of the same root issues that, that that guy did and does. My heart's really not that much different most times from him. Sure, I, I didn't maybe do that, but you know what? My heart sometimes lies in the same place, and it, 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 it's from the same, some of the sins I do are from the same spot that his sin is from. 
Isn't that refreshing? Because all of a sudden we drop the, I'm measuring up. I'm pretty good, aren't I, Jesus? Right? Come on. Tell me I've hit the standard, I've hit the mark. But instead, we, we say, no, apart from Jesus and his rescuing grace, there go I as well. And if our church would truly adapt that posture, I think that the unbelieving world would realize very quickly something's different about Grace Church. Because it seems like the more theological knowledge and understanding we get, the more pious we get. Not the more, we don't get more humble for some reason, we get more pious. And God isn't giving this information just so we can walk around and use big words and act like we have it all together. He's doing this to show us, He's teaching us to show us how this works out on street level in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our community, in our town. You see, this love your neighbor thing, this is not easy. It's not easy for me. Because why? I, I, see, I see my home as kind of like my refuge, you know? Like I'm out doing stuff all day long, and then my home is my, it's, 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 it's where I hunker down. It's, it's where I have relaxation. And in fact, I mean, truthfully, you look around and my neighbors are, are difficult people, right? I mean, they, they are. They're, like the, the, Chip said, the, the dog's barking and it goes through and does his business in my yard and the guy parks in front of my house. Why is he there? Right? That's, my, that's in my space, right? And, and, and then, um, you know, what are they building that for? The Homeowners Association clearly says they can't do that, you know? These people are causing problems to my world, my life. And see, that's my posture, because I want life to operate the way I want it to, to operate there. I'll do ministry out there. And it's funny, because the people who we think would be the natural neighbors are the people we've turned into non-neighbors. And we look at this and say, oh, Jesus is saying it's not just the people who are local to you, but the neighbors or anybody out there that's in need. Yet we can turn a blind eye to the very people who are our literal, actual neighbors. And that's why... And I pray you'll do this, and I'm going to do it as well, that you'll take your bulletin, and, and inside is literally just this, this very simple map. And look, this is not like go and knock on their door today and share them within the gospel. That's not this, okay? This right here is simply names of your neighbors, all right? I mean, the bar is really, really low here, right? Names of your neighbors. I mean, here, here's the thought process behind this. If we truly begin to find out who our neighbors are, it's just going to open up relationships and it's going to open up conversations. And as you go through classes like what Roy is doing right now, Contagious Life, and learn how to share the gospel and how to own your faith, then these conversations that are happening that where you're saying like, hey, what kind of dog is that? You know, oh, she's really pretty. Instead of, instead of like, oh, man, that dog pooping my yard again, right? I mean, all of a sudden, this, you see this neighbor differently. And like I said, this is for me as much as it is for you, maybe more so. And so it, this is about just putting your neighbor's names around your house here. And then just pray for them. Begin to pray, and I can promise you, God will open up the opportunities he wants to open up. You make yourself available, and God will give you opportunities, and he'll give you the courage. We're going to see that next week, the courage and the wisdom 
to have the conversations when they're there. You know, a lot of times these things are just, they're just rolled out in front of us. Yet we get fearful, we get afraid. I don't want to preach next week's sermon, but that th- this just is a start. This will help us understand these are truly our neighbors, right? These are people who need cared for and loved and ministered to. They're not inconveniences. They're not those who cause your life to be less peaceful. These are ministry opportunities God's put in around you. I'm going to read, and, and, and the whole scripture isn't on the screen because I really just want you to read, uh, listen as I read this scripture. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 20. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls me. You see, there's the motivation to love. It's not doubling your effort. It's not guilt. It's the love of God controls it. The love of Christ. God rescued me. God shed his mercy and grace on me. I want to worship him. I want to worship him. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, God was in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us, through you, through me. And here's the appeal. I implore you, I beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ rescued us. We respond with a heart of worship. And if you're not with God and spending time with him and humbling yourself and admitting your weakness and how that you are, apart from his mercy and grace, uh, you're, you're helpless and you're hopeless and you can't do his will. You can't fulfill his, ministry, his mission. Unless you're doing that on, on a daily basis, consistent basis, then you're not going to see yourself as God sees you. And you're not going to see yourself as the one who's saying, be reconciled to God. Here's my mission. I'm an ambassador. And I'm holding out the truth and saying, for Christ's sake, I beg you, I implore you, be reconciled to God through Christ. That's what God's put us here for. Glorify him, love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. All the law and the prophets hang right there. And it's all made possible because of Jesus Let's pray. Father God, we, we admit that it's much easier to sit here and even stand here and, and talk about your word than it is to actually take your word and, and act on it and apply it to live it out. 
I know I can think of a million excuses most days on why, why not to do the things that I don't really want to do. And God, I pray that you will help me to be sensitive to you, to your leading. Help me to live my life for your glory and your honor, to see myself as a living sacrifice, a new creation, because that's who I am before you. And God, I pray that you'll move our hearts, move us to truly, truly love those who you put around us. You tell us in Acts that you even define the borders of where men will live and where they reside. So we're not, we're not there by accident. We're there for a purpose. And God, help us to walk in that purpose through the power of the Holy Spirit, through humility, dependence upon you. In Jesus' name.